Thank you, choir and band. Give us Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, as we get to the end of our, um, our rather quick run through this amazing letter. How have your trials and temptations been going? Are you hanging on to those two anchors of God is good and God is truth? How are your tongues? Still sore from grabbing them whenever anything bad starts to come out? (laughs) I know mine is sore this week yet too. And out of last week, um, how many of you you experienced James' words to be true that indeed the power of the, or the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective? How many of you are rediscovering that in your prayer life? You know, I see hands up all across the room. For years, Those who study relationships and study marriage in particular, both in the church and outside of the church, but especially in the church, Christian counselors have been perplexed as to why it is the divorce rate between Christians runs right at the same 50% mark as it does with those who don't know the Lord. There's this sense, I think, that we all have, well, my goodness, that shouldn't be so. And there's been this or that theory and some good things written about why it is that it runs just the same. Well, I just heard a startling new statistic. It's fairly new, and it's one that I'm sure is going to draw some serious, serious attention now that it's out there done by a credible um, organization that has done this survey. 50% of Christian couples get divorced. But guess what percentage of couples get divorced who pray together? One percent. What could possibly, possibly explain that impossible shift in statistical data other than the truth that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective? Amen? So I don't throw out lightly last week. To wives and to husbands, it seems especially, we men have a problem with this. I don't throw out lightly to you to pray with your husband and your wife. I would imagine, it won't surprise me if the study goes in this direction, the remarkable effect it would have on all relationships, parents with their kids, brothers and sisters, Folks, we need to rediscover prayer if we've lost it somehow because the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Amen? 
We come now to the last of our um, quick run through our series on James, and I've saved James best for last, and not just because I think it's best, but because there's strong evidence that James has saved his best for last, or that I'm going to talk about what James feels is best. And it's not that James hasn't already given us great insight and encouragement and challenge. I hope you find, as I do, James' insight into trials and what turns a trial into temptation, our own sinful desires, certainly not God who is good. I hope you find James' insight into that helpful, as I do, When we focus on the fact that God is good and God is truth, those two anchors indeed steady us and help us to persevere even with joy. And James' advice and exhortation to guard our tongues, to keep them from saying bad things about each other, boy, that's crucial and needed advice for Christian community if we're to be a unified community and witness that unified love to the world that kind of unified, loving, prayerful community that the world is desperate for. And as we shared last week, boy, we need to rediscover God's powerful and effective gift of prayer, particularly for healing. So we've already received from James great insight and encouragement and challenge as we strive to live our faith out loud as James urges his readers But as good as these things are, they're not, in my opinion, what especially drove James to write his letter. We've not yet seen the true heart of his letter. Throughout this series on James, I've hinted to you that the structure that James uses in his letter, the structure itself, how he chooses to write it, how he puts it together, tells us something. In my opinion, the structure of the scriptures is a meaningful part of their inspiration and intended instruction. For you see, ancient writers, ancient writers often used a structure called a chiasm. Go ahead and say chiasm. And they would use a chiasm when they wanted to draw special attention to one issue in particular. An ancient writer would use use a chiasm much like we might use bold letters or underlining or italics or maybe even all caps. Something in the structure itself that draws special attention to what's there. It's because the ancient writers didn't have bold, underlined, italics, all caps on their word processors. Okay, but they had chiasms. And they'd use them whenever they wanted to emphasize something. And you find chiasms throughout the Bible, including here in the book of James. Now, here's how a chiasm works. Let's say, like in the book of James, there are three main themes a writer wants to emphasize. We'll call them themes A, B, and C. A chiasm would take those themes and organize them like this. Theme A, and then talk about theme B, and then theme C. And then repeat, go into more detail of theme C, hit theme B again, and finish with theme A. Kind of funnel into the middle and funnel out. And they would intentionally use that structure when they wanted to draw special emphasis 
to the theme in the middle. And our example on the screen, theme C. The theme in the middle of the chiasm is the one the author intends to be bold, underline italics, all caps. So let's add three things I wanted to tell you about, but one of those things in particular was most important to me to tell you about. Well, if I was an ancient writer, I would place the most important thing in the middle of a chiasm. One fairly well-known, uh, or at least I think fascinating example is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together. Many believe that those two letters, really, both written by Luke, many believe that those two letters are one huge chiasm. Here's how. The Gospel of Luke is the only one that opens by mentioning Rome. And then he moves and bunches all of the stories of Galilee. And then he goes to Samaria. And finally we end up in Jerusalem. And then what does the book of Acts do? It begins where? Jerusalem. And then we have a couple of stories in Samaria. And now we're in Galilee of the Gentiles, and Acts finally ends up in Rome again with Paul. Now, assuming that Luke organized his material in that way on purpose, and by the way, it helps explain why the chronological order of things in Luke is different than the other Gospels, but assuming that Luke organized his material in that way on purpose, what theme or the events that happened in what location for Luke did he want to draw special bold underlined italics all caps attention to where Jerusalem yeah the one in the middle and it's not hard to see why right uh, Jesus death resurrection and ascension the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that all happened there it's sort of important things to emphasize yes and so Luke organized, many feel, his two-volume work, Luke and Acts, into one giant chiasm in order to draw special attention and emphasis to Jerusalem, the one of the middle, where it all went down. And if you take that one away, well, what's the use of the rest of it, really? It's useless if you take that one away. And James does something similar, not with geography like Luke, but with those three themes we've been talking about this series, trials and temptations, wisdom and speech, and rich and poor. Now James is an expert, and he adds a little wrinkle to his chiasm. In chapter 1, James first introduces each theme briefly, A, B, C, and then he introduces them briefly again in the same order, ABC, and then beginning in chapter 2, through the end of his letter, he digs deeper into each of them in reverse order, C, B, and A. Beginning in chapter 2, James gets to the heart of the matter for him when he elaborates on that third theme, the one <clears throat> in the middle of the chiasm for James the theme of rich and poor. In my opinion, this is what really got James out of bed each morning as he was writing his letter. The most important thing he wanted these earliest Jewish Christians to hear, these Jewish Christians who were out there in a Greek culture, 
that emphasized human beings being the measure of all things, that emphasized money being the measure of all things, that emphasized a focus on self. This is what he wanted them most to hear. And it's the most important thing for us to hear too, my friends, in our extremely Greek-Roman culture. Here's the emphasis of his letter. It's about rich and poor. Let's hear what James has to say about it in chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. It's an unfortunate, in my opinion, translation of the Greek. Behind the word meeting is synagogue, which is synagogue. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, a synagogue, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, Shema, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by that law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. First half of chapter 2, James wants to talk about honor. Who is it that we should honor? In our culture, like the Greek culture of the first century, our tendency, isn't it, is to honor the, the rich and famous. We love to honor the rich and famous, don't we? The Lady Gagas of the world. Right, Shannon? I'm just kidding. You know, that American, and even human, because other cultures struggle with this too, that human phenomenon of creating celebrities today is astounding, isn't it? Think about how much we read of those folks in Hollywood and about their lives and what, why do we care? But we do care. Actors and entertainers, athletes, accomplished scholars and authors, and the wealthy, they're famous. But when we talk about church, the people of God, and the love of God, we need to remember, and James attempts to remind us, no one is more worthy than anyone else. God gives honor and standing to those the world calls poor and lifts them up. And James is telling us we should too, if we're indeed to keep that royal law and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, uh, both Christian and secular historians all agree one reason they point to, to why it is that the early church grew so quickly grew at such an extraordinary rate in the first century is because among all the Greek and Roman gods, among that huge pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, the only true and living God, our God, is the only one who made a direct, sincere, sacrificial appeal to the poor. That basic tenant, that mark of the Holy Spirit, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, care for the poor, is truly, my friends, what makes or what should make Christianity distinct. When the Apostle Paul and others went into a Greek and Roman world that honored and worshipped the top of the heap, 
And they went there with the scandalous message of the gospel for all and everyone and spread the good news to the poor in particular that in Christ they were heirs together with him, direct heirs of God himself because he loved them. Well, those churches couldn't hold all the poor that came running to the open arms of a loving God. No one ever told them that before. Yes, it's true, I want you, God said to the down and out, to the lowly and the poor. You know, archaeologists have found several hospitals of the Greek god of healing, Asclepius. And they discovered a sign that was commonly posted over the doors to those healing centers. You know what those signs said? They said, no elderly or pregnant women allowed. You know why? Because the elderly and the pregnant tended to die a lot, and that made the God look bad. Can't have you making our God look bad, so keep out. You know, my brothers and sisters in Christ, our God isn't concerned about us making him look bad. He wants us, all of us, warts and all, because he loves us and he wants to lift us up to heal us in Christ. Come to me, he says. Come, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he says. Come. And we're called to be those open arms of God, especially to those the world rejects. Does the church still bear that mark of the Holy Spirit today, do you think? Are we seen as a place where those the world disregards are honored? Or do we sometimes get tangled into our culture's tendency to honor only the rich and powerful and famous. I wonder, I wonder if the church again turned her attention or redoubled her attention and focus to, wel- to welcoming the poor, the sick, those who struggle with open healing arms of love if it would experience again the same remarkable growth it did in the first century. I wonder. Actually, I don't wonder. I believe it would. Years ago now, some of you probably remember this because it made headlines, Ted Turner caused quite a stir when he said this. Ted once said, Christianity is for losers. I remember. I remember when I first heard that, I was offended my spirit at least was, I'm not a loser, Ted, you are. It's the Greek in me. But isn't that actually what James is saying? If Ted Turner or the world or anyone labels you a loser, do you know who never, ever, ever will label you a loser? God won't, not ever, that's who. You're not a loser to him. He made you, and he loves you. He loves you so much, he's seeking to establish his presence in and among you. He loves you that much. 
If you feel like a loser this morning, then I hope you feel right at home with all the rest of us losers, you know, beginning with me. Because, but for Christ, but for Christ, I'm a loser. But in Christ, he lifts me up. He washes my feet. He brings me healing. He honors me, calls me his brother. He pulls out my chair and offers me a seat at God's generous table. And as we meet others, my brothers and sisters, in that Christ, we should show the same honoring love of God regardless of someone's worldly standing. James moves from honoring the poor to sharing with the poor. And it's in this context in James, sharing with the poor, that we get his very famous line. He repeats it three times in different ways. But his closing line on rich and poor in chapter 2 is that very famous line, faith without works is dead. That's the line. The one that caused Martin Luther to label James a letter of straw. It's weak. And led Martin to put it at the end of his Bible and not even list it in the table of contents. Did you know? Wow, Martin, what did you really think? (laughs) To be fair, Luther came around on James later in his life. Perhaps we can empathize with Luther a bit because James' statement on its face, faith without works is dead, and especially his statement earlier in the chapter that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone, well... At first read, at least, that certainly seems to run against what the Apostle Paul in particular has to say when he discredits works of the law and and firmly proclaims that a person is justified by faith and faith alone. So which is it? Is a person justified by faith alone Or is a person justified only by faith accompanied by works? If we had two hours, we could unpack this issue fully. But let me give you one key that's been helpful to me in understanding this apparent contradiction between Paul and James, and it's to realize that Paul and James are talking about two very different things in two very different circumstances. When Paul is talking about works, he's talking about works of the law in the context of Jewish and Gentile Christians getting along. Works of the law is a phrase that means those portions of the Torah, the law, that make you Jewish. Things like circumcision, what you eat or don't eat, how you cut your hair, the coat you wear with its tassels in the corners, and so on. Things that make you Jewish. And Paul adamantly stands up and proclaims, hey, Well, that's a paraphrase. I don't know if he actually said, hey. That's a paraphrase. (laughs) Paul says, hey, you Jewish Christians, like me, Paul says, stop trying to make the Gentiles become Jewish. Simply being Jewish by following those works of the law 
Those things that make us Jewish, they're not necessary to follow Jesus. They're not necessary to salvation. So stop trying to make them Jewish. They don't need to be circumcised. Oi! James, on the other hand, isn't talking about works of the law. He's talking about works of charity or love. Or if you prefer, he's talking about the works of the law The law he's talking about isn't those things that make you Jewish like circumcision. Rather, it's that royal law of love, your neighbor as yourself. Two different topics that Paul and James are addressing. And if you end up wrestling with this apparent contradiction between Paul and James, and I don't believe they contradict at all, but if you find yourself wrestling with this, please include in your wrestle... Galatians 5, verse 6, which says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. My goodness, who said that? Who's the author of Galatians? Paul! The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Well, isn't that exactly, precisely what James is saying here in James 4? Don't tell me Paul and James disagree. They're in concert. And if we don't see that, then it's our understanding, not theirs, that needs a little work. Or in context this morning, needs some works. supposed to laugh at that, you know. I'm really funny, just ask me, right? (laughs) And oh, James takes out his sharpest pen, passionately appeals to his brothers and sisters in Christ to share with the poor. Please, he pleads, like so many parables of Jesus himself, don't settle, don't get caught just hearing the word of God, just knowing what it says, even just knowing the royal law of love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just hear it, instead just do it. Nike agrees agrees with James, sort of. Did you know Nike is a Greek god? We go around wearing her symbol. She had wings, hence the swoosh. Nike was the winged goddess of victory. Different sermon, I digress. (laughs) Don't just be hearers of love your neighbor as yourself. Be doers of it. Because what good does it do anyone if you just hear something, know something, but don't live it out loud by doing, by being it, by showing it through your actions and your lives and who you are. Be who you are. Out loud, James pleads with us. Do it. You know that near the foundation of all we do as a church is something called Shema, the greatest commandment. You see a summary of it every single time you walk in this sanctuary on Sunday mornings above the head, above my head. Love God, love others. You remember Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? They all wanted one. What's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your might. They went, oh, that's the greatest commandment. He said, but wait, the second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And neighbor includes even your enemy. And then I went, that's radical stuff. And when you make as a Jewish rabbi the second is like the first, what you're doing is you want to obey the first. How is it that you obey the first? We're to love God by loving others. The mark of the Spirit, one huge mark of the Spirit is our care for the poor. I'll close this way, give you a P.S. How many of you know Pentecost? That Acts 2 incredible story when the Holy Spirit comes and fills his people in a new way, I believe, with power. Available for all. The Jewish practice called Pentecost is called Shavuot. Say Shavuot. It's also known as the Day of First Fruits. Immediately following Passover, people would bring in their wheat harvest and give God the best. But you know what God told them as they were cutting their wheat fields, what they were supposed to do? He said, don't cut the corners of your fields. Why not? So that the poor who are hungry can come in. That's their harvest. And so at a time when the Jews were celebrating when God gave them Torah, gave them their guide, they were also to care for the poor. Fast forward to Acts 2. The Holy Spirit, a whole new level and experience of God's guide comes down. In the same context of Mount Sinai with smoke and thunder or tongues. And as power is poured out, right at a time when they're supposed to leave the corners of their field, and after Peter is done with his amazing speech, and 3,000 are saved and come to know the Lord to replace the 3,000 that were lost in disobedience at Mount Sinai. Peter gets done. And filled with the Holy Spirit, what's the very next thing in Acts 2 that Luke tells us about? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And then this note, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. My friends, our care for the poor is a mark of the Holy Spirit. Following the service downstairs, there's something we're calling our missions fair. You'll find 12 or 13 tables, each and every one of those tables dedicated in some way to helping those who are less fortunate than we are. I want to invite you down there. Come and walk around the tables, see what it is that they're doing, and listen Listen for the tug of the Holy Spirit for how it is that maybe you can help 
and you can get involved with helping those who struggle. I'll see you down there after the service. Let's pray. We'll pray. We'll have a closing song and a benediction, and then uh, we'll get you on your way. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of how important it is to witness of who you are, that we care for the poor. Father, as we enter into a season of great rejoicing, first in thanksgiving for all you've given us and culminating even on Christmas and for what you've given us that is best, your son. Remind us as we bring to bear so many of our resources, our time, our talent, our money, as that swells up, oh, Father, please help us to remember in particular the poor. Help us, Father, to see past the God of self our culture pushes so hard. Help us, Father, to be your open arms of love. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a look at your fellow man Tell me what can I do today
you'd uh, remain standing and just go ahead, turn and face me. I'd, I'd like to give God's blessing in the midst of community where you can actually look and not just see someone's back or sides, but can see their faces too, your beautiful faces that I get to look at the whole time. This good word, this benediction, comes from the book of Job. As you know, Job is called by God the most righteous man on the earth. And Job, in trying to work through why it was all this was happening to him, gives us some insight into who he is. Here's what he says about himself, the most righteous man on the earth. He says this of himself. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. And those who saw me commended me. Why? Because I rescued the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to aid them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. And oh, West Bulls, may that be said of us. May we come to the rescue of the poor. May those who are dying bless God for us. May we help the orphan and the fatherless, and may we make the widow's heart sing. So help us, God. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Hey, please come on downstairs. See what you can do to help. Love you guys. God bless you all.